Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 273. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, I've got author and aerospace engineer, John Connolly. And man, I cannot thank Cecile Elliott enough for sending me this slate of great guests. She is just the coolest at hooking up good people in Denver. And this is but another feather in her cap for a great hookup. John is the co-author of a book called Beyond Kuiper, The Galactic Star Alliance. It's a sci-fi book, was recently released. He's been working on it for a number of years after meeting his co-author, Matthew Medney, and becoming best friends with him. And I'll admit, I have not read it yet, but it sounds awesome. Check out the description of the book on johnofalltrades.us, that's J-O-N of alltrades.us, and then listen to this week's episode because he describes kind of how the process unfolded from meeting Matthew to becoming very, very close with him, to having an idea for a book, and then the process of what it actually takes to co-author a book. It's daunting. It sounds intense. It sounds excruciating at times, but he does it all with such good humor and such enthusiasm. It's remarkable to me. I mentioned he's also an aerospace engineer for Lockheed, and currently three satellites using his designs are orbiting our planet. So that in itself is a very big job, which I'm sad we didn't get to talk about very much on the practical side, but it kind of comes up at the back end. Needless to say, this is one smart, passionate dude. He told me before we got on mic that he doesn't sleep a ton, and creating a whole world in this novel, Beyond Kuiper, and in building things that are currently orbiting the Earth. I mean, those are two very intense, passionate jobs. And he's an amazing dude for the reasons in which he pursues these things. Listen to this story and try not to get inspired. I can promise you that. We'll get to that in just a second, but a quick programming note for me. As many of you know, schools are currently taking place at home, so I don't know what my schedule is going to be like in the next few weeks. I'm balancing my business, I'm balancing the show, I'm balancing my family, which is obviously most important to me. And so I don't know exactly where we're going to land on this. But I will keep you updated on social media. Facebook's probably the best. But no matter what platform you're on, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, or Instagram, the handle is the same, J-O-A-T-Pod. I probably wouldn't bother with Snapchat. I don't think many people culturally are bothering with Snapchat. As I got on there, tried to figure it out, couldn't, and largely gave up, but I still have the handle. So so if you find yourself on there and want to connect with me for whatever inane reason you have, that's the handle. Otherwise, I'm going to do my best to keep churning out quality content that you enjoy because, God forbid, we all find joy in, this trademark phrase, these very challenging times, which whoever the copywriters are for advertisers can fire that phrase into the sun. But doesn't make it any less true. It's a tough time. This show is designed to bring joy and highlight the work of very passionate, talented, and just plain delightful individuals, of which... John Connolly is one of them. So let's get to his episode. Episode 273 features John Connolly, co-author of Beyond Kuiper, the Galactic Star Alliance, and an aerospace engineer for Lockheed Martin. His episode starts right now. Absolutely. And it was very different than when I was walking into a bookstore, a local bookstore or Barnes and Noble with a copy of our book, which was fully printed with its ISBN number and pitching it still felt so much of a, on the outside feeling. There was a, a glitch when we were having the books initially not published, but when they, the release date happened because the digital books and the audio book happened on November 10th and then there was a two week delay and that's when it hit Barnes and Nobles and all physical copies came out. And, uh, the Barnes and Noble, you know, they emailed me and said it was, that was the one. So I knew to come in. Yes, it did. It did feel like it belonged there. It was weird. At that point, no longer did it feel like some weird pseudo professional book because I'm holding it in my hand, but I'm walking into a store versus it's there and it is 
one row. There's seven copies. It's facing you. It's not the spine and it's directly below the three body problem. Wow. And that was surreal. And then it became real that we are there. I mean, I don't know if this book is going to make money, <laughs> but I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a great story. I don't know how financially successful it's going to be. I know I'm not giving up my day job, nor would I anyway, because I believe that's intrinsic to my nature of being able to tell this story, but we're there. Big milestone feeling. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I, I can only imagine. Um, so this is John Connolly, one of the co-authors of beyond Kuiper and also an aerospace engineer and which you mentioned is intrinsic to your sort of knowledge in doing this story. What's interesting to me is we met thanks to Cecile, which she's one of my favorite people, just delightful. And her daughter and my daughter, just good friends. And she keeps like feeding me this like conveyor belt of interesting people to talk to, which I'm intensely grateful for. So that's how we met. But this is our first conversation. So I'm curious, having not really like talked to you much before, do you have uh, writing in your background or is this something that kind of came about? How did this book come to be? Um, given that your day job, you're an aerospace engineer and you don't necessarily associate that with authorship. So can you take me through kind of the origin of it a little bit? A brief history. The origin would begin with meeting my best friend and co-author, Matthew Medney. Uh, we met at EDC Vegas in 2012. We were both there by ourselves. We also didn't want to waste our money or waste our time. So we were on that first shuttle out <laughs> from our hotel and ended up sitting next to each other and just started having a nerd conversation. And that conversation lasted that entire bus ride, the security line into the stadium. You know, why not? Let's take a ride on the Ferris wheel because there's no line right now. And then do you want to beast the main stage together for the next 10 hours? Sure. And after that, we were best friends and we've been in constant contact almost ever since, even though, I lived in Connecticut and he lived in New York and then I lived in Denver and he lived in LA. Uh, and that's where he lives now. And I live in Wheat Ridge, which is just outside of Denver. Oh yeah. Denver's no, oldest I'm... suburb. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in Golden. Our crosstown high school rivals was Wheat Ridge High School. The Wheat Ridge Farmers, we were the Golden Demons. And so, <laughs> literally the demons. Sorry. And I used to uh, <laughs> refer to it as the Battle of the Pitchforks. Uh, I like that. Yeah, that never caught on, but uh, it was something I always had in my head. I'd be like, oh, yeah, no, it's like the Battle of the Pitchforks. And everyone I would say that to was like, no. I go. I feel like the Battle of the Pitchforks comes off as the name of some obscure cla- piece of classical music. <laughs> yeah. Like the Rite of Spring. Yeah, no, totally. Like, and... and uh <laughs> It's it's almost like so yes it's a battle piece so it's got that very sort of um you know anthemic vibe but it's the pitchfork so maybe it's a little bit more pastoral you know who knows anyway so okay so I tan I tangented so very far off so anyway where I was getting that is fast forward to 2016 Matt and I talk all the time and we always love to bounce different science fiction concepts off of each other and talk about you know the latest films and TV shows that were related to sci-fi that we had seen, the books that we had read, uh, graphic novels that were occurring, that we were becoming more aware of and, and, you know, and discovering for each other and sharing. We had a conversation once, which was, I believe Matt looking at me and saying, okay, but why are the aliens haven't talked, why haven't they talked to us yet? And the conclusion that we drew was that they didn't want to. And from that thought began a sort of, it wasn't a cohesive story. It was, it was, it was a sequence of scenes, of images, uh, spacecraft passing Saturn, uh, people working in a lab. But we slowly built this story in our heads for a little bit. And then there's an email chain that started going back and forth. And then one day I found Carl Sagan's quote about the earth being a moat suspended in a sunbeam. And I wrote the first page using that as part of it. And then I sent it to Matt and he said, yes, this is where we begin. So at that point we started writing 
And so that was how we got to that point. And that's how that idea of that the aliens don't want to talk to us is what drives our story and how we built the Beyond Kuiper universe. Okay, so in the in the forefront of a lot of the descriptions of this book is the sentence, there is no Drake equation. And so for anyone unfamiliar who, who may not be as well-versed in sci-fi, tell me what the Drake equation says, and then tell me how that plays into your story. The Drake equation is used to explain how life statistically in the universe, and it, it takes a series of factors, and you use them as a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction to give you the chance for civilization. So, for example, the number of stars in a galaxy, the number of stars in a galaxy that have planets, the number of stars in a galaxy that have planets that are possibly Earth-sized, the number that are, or not Earth-sized, the ones that are potentially habitable for life, the ones that have life occur, the ones that have sentient life occur, the ones that have sentient life occur at coexisting times in the universe and to be close enough to communicate. And the last factor is the average life expectancy of said civilization. So using that metric, he could explain a way that, or infer, I just that way, he could infer that numerically the chances of having civilizations, even if you had many, be able to find each other in a reasonable amount of time before the civilization ends. It, that, that's why it's, it's infinitesimal. Is, is, yes, it, it's it, infinitesimal. Space, space is huge. Time is long. You know, we're talking about the span of the universe and right. our civilization's only been around for, you know, this, this portion since we're going to go back to the, you know, pyramids in Mesopotamia, about 5,000 years of cohesive recorded history. Of that, only the last 150 have had significant technological advancement. Only in the past 100 or so have we finally been beaming radio waves and allowing the, anyone else to maybe detect us to even start. Right. And we have only sent people as far as the moon, and not since 1972. <laughs> So we're not exactly making our, we're not really making ourselves that detectable. But then again, that's also the question of, is that necessarily something you want to be doing broadcasting your location? If you think that you would be potentially vastly technologically inferior to someone else. Right. I, I think it's interesting. You, you had uh, an interesting choice of words there and possibly a Freudian slip, but explaining away why there might not be sentient life elsewhere in the universe at this particular time. Um, so it sounds like you have skepticism about this, but also that informs basically what's going on in the plot of this book. There, there is sentient life out there, but they simply don't want to interact with us. Well, I also want to stipulate that at the time the Drake Equation was made, there were far less known exoplanets. Okay. And as we've continued to discover how many there are around stars and have begun to deduce an average, NASA and the scientific astronomical community have revised those numbers significantly to indicate that there could be hundreds of billions of planets. And so, I mean, even then, if you start taking tiny fractions, it really... I think that the chances begin to grow. And then we also take the liberty of believing that civilizations can endure a lot longer and faster than light travel exists. That's the sort of magical, that's the next leap. That's the key. Right. Really nothing else, really nothing else matters. Either you can move faster than the speed of light and thus make the ability to have a cohesive civilization, a cohesive interstellar civilization, a lot more likely, or just, you know, you as a, as a human being, being able to enjoy things, we just won't live that long. Right. If we actually, if, or, or we've got to figure out cryo sleep, but I've been doing a lot of side research on fusion drives and 
antimatter drives and how fast the speeds that we could achieve. But the amount of resources that would take and still the amount of time, it's, it's not fun. It, <laughs> it makes trying to traverse the oceans in old days seem like a walk in the park. <laughs> right. And it certainly wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, you know, in terms of when you're crafting a story like this in science fiction, um, and I'm always compelled by the genre of science fiction because of the marriage of the two words, science and fiction. When you are creating a universe like this, and of the reviews, when you read reviews of Beyond Kuiper, what's brought up a lot is the intricate world building and the the plausibility of the way in which people interact. And you, you talk about, you know, getting, uh, traveling faster than the speed of light and things like that. How important is it to you to have some scientific plausibility versus how much are you relying on a reader's suspension of disbelief when you create a world like this? Do you concern yourself deeply with making the science seem like very plausible or is it something where, okay, if we give them enough, the suspension of disbelief will take us the rest of the way? I put it, truthfully, I put it somewhere in the middle. I would say that for the human side of the story, we have been very meticulous in trying to have the technology that is available be able to be talked back to something today or you know, only be a step beyond or something that is theoretically possible. Like then fusion is theoretically possible. You know, physics proves it's something that does exist. We lack the material science and the energy capture method right now to make that viable. These are the things, you know, each day we find new innovations in nanotechnology and space planes, in hypersonic rockets, in you know, different medical dr and drugs, in synthetics, in prosthetics, and we're just take that part. And so I think that's really there where a lot of our hard sci-fi is. Mm -hmm. But I've also just it's been it's been a, a personal personal test or just a personal challenge to ourselves to really design things and be considerate of what really needs to happen because it just, I don't know, it, it gets you that much more invested. In. I feel that we now are not just writing a story or writing a story that people are going to have the potential to be analyzing to, to shed more light on the science though and, and make people understand the difficulties of space travel or the energy requirements for different mechanisms. Um, you know, I, I, th I think about, <laughs> I think about a show like Silicon Valley, which was one of my favorite HBO shows. And, you know, it's, it's a tech show created by Mike Judge, who, you know, best known for King of the Hill, Beavis and Butthead, things like that. But when he started writing this tech story, uh, he had a team of advisors that he kind of leaned on to make the tech side at least sound plausible. So, the whole story is based on something called middle out compression, which is not something that exists, but is sort of in the realm of plausibility, mostly because they, they want this to look and feel at least kind of authentic and give the characters fodder. Like, so his team of advisors would say, here are the problems you're going to encounter after series A funding. So basically it's all part of really, uh, this is a Simpsons word, but cromulent world building. You know, you, you want your world to look like something that actually people can grab onto. And that's what I hear you describing. Like, th fusion is possible. Theoretically, the things that we talk about are possible, but they're impractical right now with the materials and the knowledge that we have. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, that is. Okay, perfect. But you're using that sort of uh, to build a, a very human story around. Is that right? Yes, because we're taking you to 70 plus years in the future. And you know, we see what Earth has done. I mean, there's, there's a bit of cautionary tale in there. We wanted to try to not have a world that was simultaneously an absurd dystopia or, you know, a, a, a utopia for that matter. Right. You know, we, we want something that people will believe in there. And then, but then my follow-up to that was 
that the other side of the story for the alien standpoint is it's aliens with millions of years of technology. There's shields. There's it can be anything uh, you want at that point. There's magnetic levitation. Yes, although there are things you know, like there's no teleportation. There's no teleporter. A teleporter right. requires <laughs> the energy output of, of Earth. Like there's just things like not to mention. I still firmly believe that that's just killing somebody and making a copy of them. <laughs> um, because even if you have a soul, don't how does your soul know to go with the stream of protons and electrons? Because I don't know. I just it gets it gets weird. I, I, I read a story, uh, one of, one of my favorite books, one of my favorite pandemic reads from this year was a book called Point B and it's called A Teleportation Love Story. And it's essentially about big teleportation that, that takes over the world because, he, and he explains it in a way that's good enough, right? To get you invested in the story. It's like, okay, here's, nah. here's what teleportation, if it were possible, and you know, there's enough sciencey kind of stuff in it. To where it's like, okay, well, it's solved the problem of global warming because we don't necessarily need to burn fossil fuels anymore. Um, the highways are in disrepair because no one needs to travel anymore except for trucks. And so there's, and, and people tend to teleport into the most common locations that you'd expect, you know, people dying on top of Mount Everest and things like that just to get a selfie. And so, you know, you, you picture the problems that might come from teleportation. I, I agree with you. Teleportation, I don't think is, ever ever going to happen but it's an interesting clothesline upon which to hang a very human story yes absolutely and i mean we use we use a clothesline of the alien story there's been a civilization called the galactic star alliance which has existed for millions of years and even it at one point in time was an older civilization that was piggybacked off of you know, the ancient ruins of some builder race from long ago. Think of a good comparison might be the forerunner right. in Halo, that there's just layers of history to the galaxy and, and that it's rich and that we're just sort of there on the edge of it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's fantastical technology of the aliens because I mean, that, you know, isn't all explainable by earth science because why would it? I mean, at that point I can use the nature of millions of years of technology to, use the analogy that at some point it becomes indistinguishable from magic. It's, it's incredibly advanced. And that's part of the fun of it, of having, if you're going to go to there, why limit yourself? (laughs) Sure. Well, story wise. Well, and even to your point, if you took like, so this is just an iPhone 10 or iPhone X or whatever it is. If you took that back to the 1960s, like people's faces would melt off and assuming like there would be no Wi-Fi or anything. But you know, if, if you could show them everything that this thing was capable of, they'd think you were a magician or a sorcerer and you only, you don't even have to go back, but 50 years to do that. So to your point, you're right. Yeah. And, and as you can imagine, if you went back a hundred years, Oh yeah. Or you went, yeah, you went back 200 years with a, uh, you know, an all terrain, jeep or truck or something and yeah exactly and and a smartphone and an automatic gun and you can really rule the whole west <laughs> right yeah yeah you, you you just show up with uh with an ar-15 and be the king of you know uh entire territories yeah, no, it, you're you're absolutely right it'd be wild it's kind of like army army of darkness when uh <laughs> when bruce campbell shows up and with the chainsaw. Yeah. It's just too weird. Um but I mean that's what's really really fun about sci-fi. I'm curious in terms of writing the book, you and your co-author, how did you kind of tackle the process of that because you're coming at this from two very different angles. Your co-author is the CEO of Heavy Metal Magazine. You by trade are an aerospace engineer. How did you guys tackle the kind of getting this thing together and and getting it to a final product? We started writing and we didn't stop. Um, we started writing and we didn't stop, but we just kept, we never let a roadblock happen. We laid out the book, quickly realized that the story was so large that we were going to need to split it into two books. So Beyond Kuiper, the Galactic Star Alliance tackles that first portion of the story. And then uh, part two is Beyond Kuiper, Voyage of the Nomad. Oh, wow. Which we are already, which we are already, 
uh, well underway writing. Okay. How far along are you in that? About 120 pages. Okay. Out of yeah. out of how many do you think? For that one, hmm, 450, okay. 500. All right. So my, uh, you're about a quarter of the way through it? Yes. Okay. So, okay, you realize you have to split it into two books. But are are you tackling different sections? Are you sending drafts back and forth? How, how are you doing it? Yes. We start by picking a chapter that we just feel most comfortable that we both have a very good, or not both, that we ha- each have a good vision of. So we would just pick and choose. And in that respect, the book was written very nonlinearly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so the story is linear, but we just wrote and then fit them together. Because also sometimes we have shuffled chapters around. And Matt had a big focus on human politics. That was one of his specialties. Um, and I had one for alien government and for alien technology. Um, but besides that, who got what chapter was really just pretty much up in the air. And then, you know, once we would write one, we would give it to the other person. They would read through the whole thing. We would powwow they'd have their notes and then we would do like a yes or no agreeing with the edits, do a bit of editing. And so that's how we did it back and forth for each of the different chapters. And then when that was all done, we did Matt did an entire read through, did an entire set of red lines, gives it to me. I look at all the red lines, then agree, disagree. We powwow on it. Then, I read all the way through, repeat that process. Oh, and yes. So that was, that was long. Yeah. That was, that was, that was 400 pages of red lines. Do you have a question? No. Um, no, I'm just, uh, <laughs> thinking about the undertaking that that, uh, involves. And I mean, I think about, I, so I have a co-writer too when I, when I work on creative projects and, he and I both have our strengths, which it sounds like you do. We have our strengths and our appetites. And there would be times where I was writing. He was better. So we're, we write, you know, comedy stuff and he's better at getting to the joke very quickly. I'm better at sort of hanging the, the structure of the story, like laying it out, you know, getting the skeleton all laid out. And it's like, sometimes I would think I'm like, okay, a character says something really funny here. And it's like, I don't know exactly what that joke is. But I just leave it blank for him to put in, you know, so it works really well that way. In terms of you two dealing with each other's red lines, were you typically on the same page? Did you have any sort of, did you ever have it out over something or like, how did it go? No, we always were really in sync. There was very little time that we were ever in disagreement about a plot point. And if it was something, it was semantics. Sure. It was never any anything major. Yeah, um, it really worked very smoothly, the writing process. And, and then uh, after we had done our edits, uh, we had an external editor, uh, Stefan, who has been in the industry and was a professor. Uh, he did the full edit through and did some heavy edits. And then we went through all of those with him chapter by chapter and agreed or disagreed with them. And then after that, we did more read-throughs just in case there was anything left, you know, any errors that we found, full grammatical read-throughs a lot of times. Probably read through that at least 10, 11 times. Jeez. Um, so- <laughs> yeah, towards the, towards the end, I was like, okay, I need a, I need a break from reading this. My, my writing is not that cool anymore. <laughs> I, well, it, you hear this from bands all the time. When they get done finally producing an album, they almost never want to hear it again. Yeah. But like, you get done with an album, and now it's time to go tour it. And so oh. you're going to get to hear these songs now every single night. And so here you are talking to me about this process after going through the you know excruciating part of it. And then on top of everything, I'm curious about this. And so briefly, anecdotally about me. I got my start writing about professional wrestling on the internet. So I know trolls and I know criticism because I used to get angry emails all the time. This was like 20 years ago. So email was the way to go. I wasn't getting slagged on social media. Um, 
but I'd make fun of that. That required effort. (laughs) It it really did. You know, people would set up burner accounts and whatever, but I would get this hate mail and eventually you kind of learn to slough it off, which is leading me to a question. You pour yourself into this and this is not your primary gig. Then you go on something like Goodreads and there are people who will just slag it and just drag it and how do you handle the criticism? How, like, do you let it bounce off of you or how much of it do you actually absorb? I, um, in trying to take Ridley Scott's example and not look at the criticism and not have it affect me, uh, it's affecting me less. It Good. definitely was something at the very beginning when I saw the first couple of reviews on Goodreads and all three of them, as you said, slagged it. Do, well, and, and they're always going to be out there too. Like that's the thing. Yeah. Like no matter how good a thing is, like you you'll get people being like, "Oh yeah, the Beatles' White Album, dog shit." And you go, "What? Like, <laughs> what are you even talking about?" But uh, I'm sorry, keep going. No, um, you're absolutely right. But then you know, also I noticed that of almost all those very slaggy reviews, everyone had stopped reading the book very early on, and I said, say to myself, "Well, I mean." I'm, I, how, first of all, how can I even accept your criticism if you didn't finish? Second of all, it gets better as it keeps going. So, (laughs) you know, why did you, why did you stop when we were just doing the setup in the beginning? That's your own fault. Well, and if, if you're going to post like, and that makes you feel better. If you're going to post a DNF, like on Goodreads, like, why are you even there? Why post anything? Like what, what are you trying to prove with that? I don't get it. I don't either. I also, I mean, I'm grounded by the reality that, you know, this is my first novel. This is our first novel. This is something that we did with no prior novel writing experience. Uh, I'm not here going to be like, oh my God, like, you know, this thing's going to be the next Dune. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I have, I have realistic expectations. But, you know, I, I think it's a, a good story and it's a story that I'm eager to continue to tell. And that's really what excites me most. And I'm excited to be able to talk to somebody about it or have somebody ask me questions about it. Yeah. Because I, um, you know, in, a, in a, just a, a conversational setting. Because I'm sure that those questions could yield more ideas. Or, you know, or just to see, or I'm curious, though, to see how people interpret, especially excited to see how people interpret characters. Yeah. Because that's, you know, people talk about like, oh, you know, you injected like this into a character or we had a, we have a lot of characters in this story. And so, and they get relatively equal airtime, some a bit more than others, but you know, a dozen characters that are just completely out of thin air. And I haven't written characters before. And Matt hasn't written characters before. Uh, since then he's written a lot of characters with Darkwing and um, his other projects going on heavy metal. But I really want to see what people say about them. If they feel that characters are similar, if they feel that these characters are reflecting something, just because I don't know, I, I'm just excited to see other perspectives. It's interesting to me that the very first 48 hour film project I ever wrote, I wrote this, I wrote that this character was like a crime boss. I had an idea of how I thought the character ought to be played, but we gave it to the actor. He started rehearsing it, and he said, you know, I'm really kind of getting a used car salesman vibe from this guy. Like, he's he's actually not terribly sure of himself. He's not as confident as I think you think he is, and here's why. And he pointed out some dialogue, and then he kind of played it for me. And as he was reading the character to me, I go, dude, you've picked up notes of this character that... I didn't necessarily have on top of my head, but subconsciously you're absolutely right. He's trying to convince this other character to come with him and to join his side, but he knows he's full of shit. So he's, he's kind of laying the salesman job on him. And I go, that's a great read of my character. So it's always interesting when your work gets in the hands of other people, because once, once it's done, once it's out there, it kind of no longer belongs to you. Exactly. It belongs to the universe, and it's always interesting to see what comes back. Is there something in particular that has surprised you that has come back from feedback of this book? No. Not really. Not not surprise. 
Is there something that's been particularly rewarding uh, about the feedback that you've gotten? Uh, people saying that they really enjoyed the the hard sci-fi and, and the heavy influence of science in it. And, uh, and all, that was the most rewarding. Also, what was the most rewarding was people who found the footnotes a nice addition because yeah. they were a very polarizing element. <laughs> um, footnotes get out. No way. Yeah. And that was, that was, I was, okay. Maybe that, uh, to answer your question before, that would be the one. The okay. one that surprised me was just how polarizing, uh, footnotes were because of people who were just like, oh, I actually don't like them. My <laughs> thought in my head, I'm like, okay, well, like, you don't have to read them. I wish I had an additional page in the front that would be like, disclaimer. If you don't feel like reading the footnotes, by all means, you do not need to. We wrote the book so you don't need them. They're, they're a nice, I'll say that now. They're a nice addendum. Uh, and we wanted to be able to give people who are reading along if they wanted to flat, you know, more fleshed out in the, in the backstory. It's bonus uh, content. I mean, like, exactly that. And so like as someone who's read a lot of Chuck Klosterman and Chuck Klosterman, a pop culture writer, he's writing about pop culture and he's got footnotes in there. The footnotes for me are where like the, the geekiest and funnest stuff lives. Like that, that's where it is. Because yeah, it's like, it's bonus because it's like, oh, okay, I have to do extra work. As long as I don't have to flip to the end, like as long as you're not doing end notes, because that's a whole different bag of cobras, but like. Well, and, and well, exactly. And actually to your point, it started out as a codex that was going oh. to be, uh, because we, we had over 150 pages worth of glossary. Oh my. And, and, and backstory and timelines and all this information. And, but we did realize that people, as you said, aren't going to want to just go back and flip back and forth to that. So we took a very slim down, parsed down what we considered the essential bonus information. And, that is what became the footnotes. Well, and if you're unfamiliar with reading academic writing, footnotes can be sort of off-putting or intimidating. But if you have a background in reading academic writing, footnotes are kind of just the way of things. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you get used to it, and, and you kind of enjoy them. So I think that's a cool addition. I mean, that, that, that certainly speaks to um, the wonkier side of what you guys are trying to achieve here, which I, I think is good in terms of sci-fi. Well, it, it definitely has a bit more of a multimedia approach than a traditional novel, I would say. I mean, we have full color illustrations in every chapter and front cover, back cover. Uh, Uku Osden, he, our artist, he is a fantastic person to work with. Uh, he really is able to take what we concept and put it onto the page, just you know, from our imagination into living color. And then on top of that, you know, we do have images of all the planets. We have timelines and timetables and, uh, glossary and how government structures work and different technology. Because we do want to do, uh, appeal to the inner nerd and not the inner nerds, the nerds that we are. And the, to the other people, I mean, this is for the nerds, for the, the, you know, loving comics and loving Marvel and loving Star Wars and loving Star Trek. And that's, you know, the story was designed out of wanting to, to bring all of that, like to bring a really full world. And yet people decide they don't have to, they absolutely don't have to read any of that, but I hope that they do and they just find it enjoyable and find it immersive. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, that's, that's what you're looking for. If, if you're, if you're in the market for something like this to begin with, that like the the fact that you have built this out in this level of detail is to me an indication that you had a lot of art screaming to get out of you at this point to to do something to this extent on a first go especially is remarkable to me you know it's not just um a short you know like some people will kind of be like i have an idea for a world it's not fully formed it, you know, here's a short story that I might consider, or here's a graphic novel or whatever, right? This is a fully formed book where you have ideas for more books coming after it. And the fact that, that, you know, you, you mentioned 
in earlier versions, there was uh, a full-on glossary of terms and illustrations of planets. I mean, my God, man, like how long has this been floating around in your head? Uh, I mean, I will, as I said, when we first started, it was really images and scenes. So that art came around four plus years ago. But I mean, we started, you know, both of us love space from a very young age. So uh, a lot of the uh, images have been there for a long time. But no, really, as we as we made this story and built these different alien species, and the story necessitated the worlds. It was really more like as it was going, we would create these worlds as we were building the tale, and then we needed to make them real and leap off the page and, and give them life and civilizations. Uh, and then, you know, as, once again, as we built civilizations, we let factors about their history, their physiology maybe begin to dictate their governments, their style of living, their architecture. Right. Um, you, you make choices, and those sort of beget other choices. Exactly. Um, and, no, that, that makes perfect sense to me. But before you met Matthew, did you have designs on doing anything like this prior? No, not of, not of writing the story like this. I had uh, hopes of wanting to paint scenes of it someday and you know large canvas using acrylic paint but this got there first yeah. but i still hope i still hope to do that sometime when i have a little a little more time and and just kind of for my own enjoyment paint some of the scenes from our story because there's so many it, as you say it's now there out in the universe yeah and i can kind of sort of maybe detach a bit and like look at it from the outside and then try to you know interpret it through artwork yeah absolutely um, you mentioned time. You are, uh, an aerospace engineer for Lockheed. And, uh, according, like, based on what you have written here on Goodreads, um, it says you perform mechanical design for NASA's deep space missions with three satellites using your designs, uh, three satellites that are currently orbiting our planet using your designs. That strikes me as a very time consuming type of job. It, am I correct in assuming that? Yes. You are correct. Okay. So when we got on here, you mentioned you don't sleep a ton. How much uh, of your time is divided between real, like your your day job? I, I hesitate saying real job. They're both real jobs. But between your day job, the job that pays your bills, and this passion project, um, you know, beyond Kuiper, how, how do you divide your time? And, and how do you stay up for both? Because those both strike me as requiring a lot of passion intentionality, intensity. How do you do it, man? Uh, I, I get it for both because I love both. Uh, both occupations are incredibly fulfilling. I get to participate in furthering humanity's exploration of space uh, and our travel in space. And, I mean, that's... Ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to build spaceships. And, and I'm finally doing it, so... That that alone is, is reason to get up in the morning. Um, God, that's awesome! Like, then, what what was it about when you were a little kid about wanting to build spaceships? What 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 was the moment? Can you pinpoint it? Like, do you have kind of an aha moment, or what what led you to this career that you knew so early on? I think. Well, I mean, it was. It, it's hard to say. It was a blend somewhere of. You know, there's some Star Wars and Star Trek when I'm very young that's happening. I remember Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But I think it was when Deep Impact played and the idea that humans could build a spaceship. Uh, well, what purpose is this? Because I love, absolutely love dinosaurs. Always have. I mean, what kid, what five-year-old didn't love dinosaurs? What seven-year-old didn't love dinosaurs? But you know, the dinosaurs were wiped out by an asteroid colliding with the Earth. And in this story, there is humans working together to build a spacecraft to be able to try to avert that. And at that point, I just thought, you know, the, the possibility of, of what we can achieve. And I wanted to be part of it. I don't know. I wanted, I wanted to be part of that. And then I think the next year, within the same year, Armageddon, which 
we're not going to speak much to its science, but <laughs> I love that film. And, uh, you know, in that film, there's a plaque. It's a memorial plaque that's on the launch platform for Apollo 1. And on it, um, it's a memoriam to the crew. And, and um, it says, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but, uh, you know, for those who gave the ultimate sacrifice so that we might reach the stars. And I was just lost it. Absolutely <laughs> lost it. When, when I read that on the screen and then research it and everything. I told myself somehow at that point that I was going to someday get to that plaque on my own. And I actually did. I got to go to NASA for work two years ago. Actually, uh, yeah, two years ago. And I got to go to the beach and it was quiet. There was nobody there. And there's the sea salt corroded looking like a, a piece of ancient alien technology, uh, which was a platform for the, uh, the rocket. And there's that plaque and yeah, it just, it's a love of a dream. I mean, I, I want to believe that humans aren't meant to die here. If, if we, we do exist and just simply the nature of existence is pretty absurd. <laughs> yeah. The, the number we can, I think we can agree on that. I mean, the, the chances of it are, ridiculous but it does but it does happen we are here we can do the things we can do and we can decide what to do with the time that we're given to us and we you know some of us have a lot of free will on that others are born into awful or certainly less than awful life circumstances but you know it's a great thing to appreciate and to experience um, and, and so I just want then that humans to take that opportunity to try to be all that they can be and why not reach for other worlds? I mean, it's almost like a, because we can try, but you know what? I really, I think that is it because I think that's really where, you know, humans can do incredible things out of need, but I want to see what we want to do because of will you are an that's not driven by fear. <laughs> you are an absolutely beautiful human being, and I could listen to you talk about that all day because that I mean that's inspiring. Because it, I mean, shit, man, that's the nature of existence, and and you are reaching for that which is beyond most of humanity's sort of aspiration or perhaps contemplation. You know, a lot of people. You see them, they're not looking past their own noses on their face. But you are looking to expand human capability, both in terms of what you do practically in your day job and in the worlds that you're creating in this literature. So I think that's just absolutely gorgeous, and I cannot think of a better note to end on. So hearing you describe that, man, just incredibly inspiring. And, man, what a thrill. Like, I'm so happy we got hooked up here. And thank you for sharing your story with me. Well, John, thank you very much for uh, having me. And thank you for by far and away being the most in-depth and, and meaningful question asker I have had the pleasure of meeting so far in, in this sort of new realm of doing Zoom interviews sure. like, you know, on the way for for the book and just you know, the opportunity to to talk about science and encourage people. Absolutely. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. 100%. Now's the time on the show when we do plugs. Where can people find Beyond Kuiper? Where can they find you? Whatever you want to plug, do it now. Everyone, I encourage you to go to your local bookstore and ask them to order the book. Um, if you're going to order the book personally, uh, you can order it from Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can order it from Target, from Walmart, from Amazon or directly from heavymetal.com. So uh, thebku.com, the Beyond Kuiper universe, uh, that is our central website nice. where you can see information about the universe that we're building and uh, provides links to all the purchase methods that I spoke about. Fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what. What I'll do is I will link to that on the companion blog piece. That's johnofalltrades.us. It will also be in the show notes on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your pods. It will be right there in the show notes. So, 
Be sure to check oh. out the BKU. Oh, and I have one more. Yeah. Uh, we have, Matt and I, Matthew and I have a podcast called Putting the Science in Science Fiction. And that is available on your podcast app. <laughs> nice. Pod catchers everywhere. Perfect. I will also <laughs> link to that. John Connolly, man, what can I say? This was a real thrill. This was a pleasure. And uh, big thanks to Cecile for hooking us up. So be sure to read Beyond Kuiper, and I wish you continued success. You as well. Good fortune and uh, happy holidays. And that'll do it for episode 273 of the John of All Trades podcast, featuring John Connolly, co-author of Beyond Kuiper, the Galactic Star Alliance, as well as an aerospace engineer for Lockheed. What an amazing dude. What a passionate dude. And what a beautiful individual. Thank you again, Cecile, for hooking me up with him. I cannot wait to see who you pitch me next. No matter which platform you're on, hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes will come directly to you. While you're at it, leave us a rating, leave us a review. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. This is the flagship. I produce shows for individuals, organizations, and companies. If you have a story to tell, I can help you realize it. D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, 4Degrees can help you do it better. Building a website, online advertising, social media marketing. No matter what your audience is, 4Degrees can help you identify it and then make sure the right message gets in front of it. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. I'm out of here for another week. As I said in the intro, I don't know exactly when I'll be back. I'm working my ass off to bring you quality content because let's find some joy. Take care of ourselves. Let's take care of each other. Be good to yourselves. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. Take care of each other. And maybe we can find ourselves on the other side of this. I adore you for letting me be a part of your life. Until I hear you again, say goodnight, Tracy. That's good, Johnny.